The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. It may seem a little odd that this series started where it did at the end of chapter 16, but that's because we're considering the life of Elijah. And it's interesting, the book of of 1 and 2 Kings focuses on, obviously, the kings of Israel. And um, really, one of the themes that comes out is the theme of idolatry. We come to the life of Elijah And you see that the series that we're doing is called Elijah, Zeal for Righteousness in Evil Days. We also could have called it Confronting Idolatry. That was another runner-up title for this series. And we saw last week with uh, Dr. York bring the Word of God on the end of chapter 16 that Ahab and his wife, Queen Jezebel, uh, it's, we're told that he was the most evil king up till that time. It had been, at this point, 58 years since the kingdoms divided, the northern kingdom of Israel from the southern kingdom of Judah after Solomon's reign. And uh, really, none of the seven northern kings up to this time had been good kings. They had all worshipped Yahweh, the true God, but they had set up golden calves and perverted the worship of God by worshiping through these golden calves on the high places. And, uh, and so, but now it's like idolatry has taken a further step downward in Ahab and Jezebel really pushing this along of the worship of the heathen god Baal. So that's the context of what's happening in the wider nation And it's interesting that as we come to chapter 17, which I'm going to read, you notice that there's very little introductory matter. It's not like, and now during these days of Ahab, the Lord raised up a prophet who came. It's suddenly, the way chapter 17 begins is Elijah just appears. So that's where we come in light of the wickedness of Ahab and what's going on at the end of chapter 16. Hear the word of God reading verses 1 through 7. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Hereth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain 
in the land. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul tells us that as believers, we walk by faith, not by sight. And one of the encouraging and helpful things about the Bible is it doesn't just give us truth in an abstract way, but it gives us illustrations and narrative like this, clear examples of the truth in the lives of real people. And we're told in the book of James that Elijah was a man of like passions as we are. He struggled with the same sin that we have and the same kinds of heart issues that we face. He was a weak man in different ways, but he is a clear example of what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. And he points us to the one who fulfills all the Old Testament prophets, which is Jesus Christ. Elijah was a man of zeal, and Jesus Christ said, zeal for my, for my father's house consumes me. I would like us to look at Elijah in this sense of walking by faith by sight, uh, walking uh, by, not by sight, but by faith. And the first point that I want us to see here is that Elijah walked by faith, demonstrated in his courage as he appeals and, uh, and speaks to King Ahab in verse 1. Here we have the first appearance of Elijah in verse 1 in the book, and we simply have him speaking to Ahab. We don't know where this was. It could have been in the courts in Samaria, the courts of the king, and he boldly is speaking that he is the prophet of the Lord who stands before the Lord, who serves the Lord, and he announces this coming drought. Notice that it's not going to be uh, just a drought of rain, but there's not even going to be any dew. Uh, a very severe drought. And although it's not stated in the text, it's implied that this drought is coming as a judgment of God on the nation's idolatry and apostasy. If you were here two weeks ago, you heard that the pagan god Baal was the storm god, the god of the weather and the god of fertility. And rain wasn't just something that, you know, was nice to see falling to make the grass of your yard grow. Your crops depended on it and your life depended on it. So it's not as though the people of Israel loved Baal, but Baal was more and more being seen during the reign of Ahab as the way to prosperity, as the way to security. But this challenge, this test in a sense that we're going to see come to a climatic conclusion on Mount Carmel is that Baal doesn't rule the weather and the earth. And we're going to see this by the demonstration that Elijah speaks about here, that there's going to be neither dew nor rain, and Baal isn't going to be able to help that. Let's stop and think about what it must have been like for Elijah to do what we read here. Elijah, we're told, is from this region in Gilead, a rocky, hilly area. He was a man of the wilderness, we might think of him, kind of a rough-hewn man from the, the part of Israel that was east of the Jordan. And we saw 
in the sermon two weeks ago that Elijah was concerned for the glory of God. He had a zeal for the people of God to turn to and worship and love the true God, the only God, and not false gods. He was grieved by the nation's idolatry. Doesn't it remind us of our time that that same concern is there? And James tells us that Elijah prayed that it would not rain. Think of the seriousness of that prayer. I I doubt that any of us have ever, ever seriously prayed for something like that. It's kind of like praying that the Ebola outbreak would sweep our nation, isn't it? For a nation dependent, an agricultural nation depending on, the, on crops, Elijah prayed that it would not rain. I can't help but believe that he prayed that in response to the word of the Lord to him as in his prophetic ministry. He did so realizing that the drastic disease of idolatry called for a drastic cure, that there are things worse than no rain, the nation turning to idolatry. But apparently there came a time when Elijah was fully assured that God had heard his prayer, and he also had this word from the Lord to speak to Ahab and to announce to King Ahab, the head of the nation, what God was doing. Can you imagine going to a king like that? You know, there are lots of things that we have to do in life that our heart rate might go up a little bit because it's a little bit scary to do something. I can't imagine what it would have been like to appear to uh, King Ahab, of course, with uh, uh, Queen Jezebel by his side. What kind of a response do you think he could have expected? Here comes the message from Jehovah, the true God, that severe judgment is, is in store primarily because of what Ahab and Jezebel have done, this program of institutionalizing Baal worship in Israel. You can just see them saying in their own minds, how dare this lowly shepherd peasant man bring such an outrageous message to the king? It's kind of like, can you imagine what it'd be like for an advisor of Kim Jong-un to uh, say, no, um, Mr. President, uh, I think you're on the wrong track. You know, off with his head. That's what would happen. What was it that gave Elijah this courage and this zeal for God to stand before Ahab? Well, this was a man who walked by faith, not by sight. And it's right there in our text as we see, he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Interesting that phrase, before whom I stand. There are places in the Bible like Gabriel saying, as an angel, he stands before God. Ahab was the king, but Elijah knew that there was an infinitely greater king, the Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah. And Ahab may have had much power in his day, but Elijah knew that the Lord was truly the one who ruled over all. And Ahab may have had intention to kill Elijah when he said this, but Elijah knew that his God was the one who directs the king's heart wherever he pleases, as Proverbs says. In other words, Elijah looked beyond mere appearances and beyond the things of this world. He looked 
to what he could not see with his physical eyes, and he laid on, laid hold on that which he saw with the eye of faith. That the Lord God, Yahweh, lives. And Ahab and the rest of the nation was more and more uh, bewitched by this idolatry to Baal, thinking that Jehovah somehow didn't have power to act or wasn't a true God at all, and uh, that Jehovah was allowing them to continue in this pathway of sin and idolatry that he apparently hadn't brought judgment on the land up until this time, and maybe they began to doubt that he ever would. Their idolatry was working pretty well, and maybe there was some degree of prosperity at this time. But in sharp contrast to Ahab and Jezebel and the nation, Elijah knew that Jehovah lived, and he gave him the courage to appear in this way. And he said, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve. Not only there was the sense that Jehovah lived, but Jehovah was the God whom he served. Elijah was a man who walked in fellowship with the living God, who knew the Lord. He was conscious of the fact that he was serving Jehovah, even as he stood before the king. It reminds me of Nehemiah standing before the king of his day in a foreign land, and we're told that Nehemiah prayed to the Lord his God, even in the presence of the king. He probably didn't pray out loud. He prayed in his heart. What was the source of Elijah's courage to stand before this king with the message of God? It's that fact that Elijah knew that God had called him to this task, and he was conscious of God's presence And he was convinced that God was with him, and he was serving the Lord. And I would just make that application to you and to me, that we can have that consciousness of the presence of God with us in the challenges that we face. None of us are called to stand before a wicked king like this. But what about standing before God in a winsome and yet bold way to maybe your friends or in your schools or in your jobs, at your neighborhoods? Why do we seem to have so little courage? Could it be that we have a little sense, a small sense, that our God lives and we serve this God who lives? Elijah could stand before the king and we find it hard to speak up maybe with a friend. I think of Moses, as we're told about him in Hebrews chapter 11, where we're told by faith, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. There's another place where a person didn't fear the king's wrath. And the author of the book of Hebrews tells us in the next phrase why, for he, Moses, endured as seeing him, God, who is invisible. Moses saw with the eye of faith the one true God who endured, who is invisible. Moses walked by faith. Moses saw beyond this life to the invisible. And that's what you and I must seek to cultivate in our walk with God, that we would increase in faith in our God. I think the example of William Tyndale, the great Protestant reformer, the one who was the primary one who was responsible for the translation of the English Bible in the early 1500s. 
Tyndale was put to death in 1535, and he was in the Holland area south of Brussels. He was betrayed and arrested by the authorities of that day. He was termed the arch-heretic. And for 18 months, he waited in the castle of Vilvorde near Brussels before he was executed. And it's very likely that hundreds of visitors came to his dungeon cell during that time for the privilege of arguing and debating Tyndale, hoping to possibly gain renown by being the one to persuade the arch-heretic to recant his faith. And yet Tyndale stood firm and, in fact, Uh, As Fox, the author of the Book of Martyrs, tells us, Tyndale's convictions about the truth of God and his word and his graciousness apparently influenced many in the castle and those who came to see him to some extent. He tells us that the castle keeper and his daughter and others were converted by Tyndale's witness during that time. And others in the castle said that if Tyndale was not a true Christian, then there was no such thing. Quite a statement from your enemies, I think. And finally, uh, you know probably the story when he stood at the stake to be burned. His final words were a prayer, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. I just think that's just a moving account. And... um, we would say Tyndale was an example of walking by faith in a very difficult conclusion to his life. So there's this courage and boldness that we see in Elijah. But secondly, we see his faith in God demonstrated by his obedience to God's word, his zeal for God in obedience. Look at verses 2 through 5. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? The emphasis there is that Elijah did according to the word of the Lord. He obeyed the word of God. Often, and typically I would say, God guides his people one step at a time. We don't see the whole course of our lives before us with a knowledge of the sovereign purposes of God and know what's going to unfold two years from now and five years from now and ten years from now. No, he guides us one step at a time And he calls us to really walk in obedience to his word. Elijah didn't know what was next in God's plan for him, and we'll see the life of Elijah unfold, but he faithfully carried out the first thing that God had called him to do, to give his message to Ahab, and then there was another word from God to do this now, to go to this brook, which was east of the Jordan, apparently a hidden place, And we'll see that principle again and again. In fact, one of the great themes of chapter 17, if you read through it on your own, it's not that long to read, you see a number of places and in the remaining story of Elijah about the word of the Lord coming, this theme of the word of the Lord. But what's important to notice is that Elijah obeyed. And as we think about this, I would ask you, does this seem like a typical way for God to provide? Is this a reasonable thing? Would pure, unaided human reason think this is good? 
Well, probably not. A raven was an unclean bird. Think of that. <laughs> but God used an unclean raven. The ravens came, and uh, I, I doubt that Elijah had really kind of thought that this would be what God had in store next for him. It wouldn't have seemed that reasonable. He might have thought, well, the next plan would be that God would call me to go on a preaching tour of the towns and village of Israel, calling the people to repentance. Wouldn't that make sense? Uh, But that's not what God had in mind at this point. That wasn't the plan. God's plan was to remove Elijah from the public scene and to hide him by the brook Kareth. Why did God do this? Well, the text doesn't tell us. Certainly, it's implied to some extent, and when we read through the account here as we go on, that God was using this to protect Elijah from Ahab and Jezebel, but we don't think that's the primary reason. It seems, reading through this and studying it, what most commentators say is that the primary reason is that the hiding of Elijah wasn't just a hiding of a man. It was the removal for a time of the prophet of the Lord who brought the word of the Lord. And this was a further judgment on the nation, worse than the judgment of the absence of rain. This was a famine of the hearing of the word of God. So this was a further underlining of God's judgment by removing the spokesman of the word of God. Not only was there to be this physical drought, but there was to be a spiritual drought as well, the absence of the Word of God. And that can take place in a society where people have Bibles on their shelves, as the churches often become Christian in name only, and there's a famine of the hearing of the preaching of the Word of God. It's a judgment of God And we need to pray that God would spare us this judgment if it be his will. What a terrible thing it is when preachers in God's church are no longer proclaiming the word of God. And there may be hopeful signs that God is at work to bring revival in our nation. It's hard to tell. We do not know. But we can pray that God would revive his church and have mercy on our nation. Yet... But we're told that Elijah obeyed. It wasn't because he understood all the ways of God. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. But Elijah obeyed, trusting the Lord. Out of his faith in God, out of his zeal for God. It's interesting when you think of Elijah praying for famine knowing that believers are going to be affected by this as well as unbelievers. Later on, he would find out there are 7,000 in Israel who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Women and children are going to be affected by this. And we saw that that's because there was something far worse than a physical famine. There's the problem and the deep-seated issues of idolatry. But here in Elijah's obedience, we see his his jealousy for the glory of God and the worship of God. In fact, later on in chapter 19, verse 10, we could say the summary verse about the characteristics of Elijah's ministry. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord 
God of hosts. That's Elijah describing his own life. Zeal for the people knowing God, taking precedence even over his sorrow for the famine and its results. God is choosing to vindicate his glory by means of his servant, the servant of God, who walked by faith and zeal for God, obeying the Lord out of this faith. And we think of Moses or Daniel serving the Lord or Isaiah or Jeremiah, John the Baptist, who had zeal for God, all of them pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, who out of his great zeal for the Lord, for his Father's glory, and out of obedience by faith, went to the cross to bear the punishment for our sin. What a beautiful picture it is to think about the ultimate servant of the Lord who obeyed even unto the death of a cross. Have you come to put your faith in the one who came to perfectly obey? Elijah demonstrated his faith by his obedience, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate one who came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, finally, let us see that the fact that Elijah walked by faith is seen in his trust in God's provision. His trust in God's provision. Just think of the means that God used here to provide for Elijah this small brook, which eventually dried up, and the ravens bringing bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. To the eyes of sight, these would appear as pretty strange, but not to the eye of faith. And Elijah trusted in his God to provide even through these unlikely means. God didn't give, you know, sacks of flour all sitting by the side of the creek or a well that, you know, was bubbling up all the time. He gave him these, you might say, very tenuous means of support. And Elijah took God at his word, trusting that the Lord was sovereign and that he even controlled the birds of the air. Doesn't it remind you of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Somehow, the analogy of birds is one that we have to hear. We're told to consider the birds of the air, how they do not work and so forth, but, even, but the Lord feeds them. Well, what about us? As children of God, are we trusting in our Father to provide for our needs in the very practical areas of our lives? You know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread that's something that we should be very aware of. You know, we have refrigerators full of fruit and pantries full of canned food that probably last much more than a day, maybe a few months or years. But is there this sense that our trust is ultimately in our God? I like the way in Philippians 4 when Paul is talking about the fact that he had learned to be content in plenty and in need. And not long after that, he says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. Do we really believe that's true? This experience of Elijah's must have been a test of faith. And God tests our faith as well in the circumstances of our lives. 
not that we learn to trust our own strength, but that we learn to trust in our God. I love the example of George Mueller of Bristol, who was an evangelical pastor who started an orphanage, and it was really a purely faith ministry. He never advertised or sent out prayer requests for money or things like that, but people supported him and knew about it, and the orphanage grew. But there was one day that they were down to their last loaf of bread, and the kids were all there, and he just said, let's pray. And this was a pretty astounding answer. Some of you know this famous illustration that a bread truck broke down outside their door. And he couldn't go on, and he said, well, do you want the bread? And so they brought in all the bread from the bread truck. I think that's a great example of some of the marvelous ways that God has answered prayer. Normally, it's in a more ordinary way that God provides. But to walk by faith and not by sight does not mean that we're that we are not prudent or wise. It doesn't mean that we stop working, but it means that as we walk by faith, we look beyond the circumstances of our lives and we trust God for all that we need. The temptations of the idolatries of this world and the same idolatries stand behind the things of this life these days for us, even as they did for the people of Israel. They weren't worshiping Baal because somehow they thought he was really great. They were worshiping him because of the more fundamental root idolatries of the heart of wanting security and prosperity without regard to God himself. Let us learn from the example of Elijah. The God of Elijah still rules and reigns over all. And it's interesting that the common thread of God's messengers throughout Scripture is that God did not allow them to preach a message that they did not come to know in their own experience. Do you see this? Elijah is learning from his own experience in this test by the brook. The very message that he was preaching to a nation, don't have a view of Baal, don't have a view of God. That's a manipulative view, that you're going to manipulate him for your own ends. No, Worship him and trust him with your very lives, come what may. And so by the brook, Elijah was fully cast upon his God, just like Israel in the wilderness. And the nation of Israel failed pretty miserably in the wilderness. Our God is a provider. He is Jehovah Jireh. We love that that song that goes that way. He is worthy of our praise. Baal was never a true provider. He couldn't, by his strength, make wet with dew one blade of grass. Only God is able to do that. And God can cut off what you thought were the most sure sources of provision in your life. Your career, your family, your extended family, your health, your strength, all of these things. And on the other side of the coin, God can provide in the most unlikely ways. He can use the birds of the air. And Elijah was reminded that every morning and every evening, God is the provider. He knows your needs. You can rely on him. And that's a message that all of us need to take to heart. And maybe you're in the wilderness now, like Elijah And God is teaching you that. It's a lesson that we learn again and again because it comes down 
to our worship. We are worshiping people. Every human being is always, always worshiping something. And the very reason we were created is to know the true God and worship the true God and trust the true God through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is the provider for his people. And God knows what you need, and God stakes his glory on providing for you. Come what may, even if you're in the disaster in one of these hurricanes and everything in this life is wiped away, even if it comes to God taking your very life, he provides eternally for us in Jesus Christ. Can you say, O Lord, may I know you even in my greatest need? Because our deepest need really is fellowship with the living God through Jesus Christ. O Lord, let us turn from the idols of this world to trust in you. Let that be our prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Elijah. Thank you that uh, he sought to live before you in his day. Help us to do that with different circumstances in many ways, and yet nothing has really changed. There is nothing new under the sun. Give us a holy boldness. Give us a zeal for you. Give us greater obedience to you. And all of this as we put our trust more deeply in Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.